Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A seismic shift or a flash in the pan? What does George Galloway's by-election victory mean? Welcome to Political Fix from the FT with me, Lucy Fisher. So, the Rochdale result, what does it tell us? With me to discuss that and more are my FT colleagues. Political editor George Parker. Hi, George. Hi, Lucy. Columnist Robert Shrimsley. Hi, Robert. Hello. And the FT's Jim Picard. Hello, Jim. Hi. Keir Starmer, this is for Gaza. So we're meeting on Friday morning after George Galloway put Labour's leader on notice last night in his victory speech in Rochdale. On Monday, he'll be back in Parliament. But what does all this mean for Labour? George, it's pretty embarrassing, isn't it, that Labour have had to uh, apologise that uh, they weren't able to field a candidate in this by-election. They claim that that's the only reason George Galloway won. Is that a credible line of argument? Well, it's quite a big reason, I guess, uh, but it's also a big failing on the part of the Labour Party that they selected this candidate in the first place and then had to reverse out of it. But obviously, it's a huge failing for the Labour Party. It's a massive headache now for Keir Starmer as well, because you're going to have George Galloway turning up in the House of Commons and basically trying to inflame divisions within the Labour Party on the question of Gaza. And, you know, it's a it's a humiliating night, I think, not just for Labour, but also for all the mainstream parties in Rochdale. Um I think out of the three main parties, including Azza Ali, the, who was going to be the Labour candidate until he was suspended, they managed to muster 25% in total of the vote. That's a really shocking indictment, I think, of mainstream party politics at the moment. I think that's right. And when you look back to 2019, those three big political giants swept 90% mm. of votes. So it's a huge fall. Um, Robert, does Rochdale, does that result then suggest there is a wider sense of dissatisfaction with the mainstream political parties? Or are there specifics pertinent to Rochdale that mean we can't read too much into this result? Well, I mean, it is one of the oddest by-elections ever. I mean, not only did you have essentially no Labour candidate, um, the Greens had disowned their candidate, the Liberal Democrats didn't realise in a seat where they had once been the the incumbent, Mm. didn't realise that there was a chance that they didn't bother campaigning. You know, the Tories were nowhere. The Reform Party selected a disgraced former Labour MP. I mean, it's almost like a comedy uh, if it wasn't so serious. Um, So I think it's probably a mistake to read too much um, beyond it. It's clearly not an outcome that Keir Starmer would have wanted. I think it probably doesn't portend very much for the shape of what's coming in the election and in national politics, unless the Gaza conflict is still going on at the time of the general election. The only place where I think it could have any sort of long-term resonance is in Scotland, where uh, the SNP has pushed very, very hard and campaigned very, very hard on Gaza and is a major viable alternative vote um, to the Labour Party, clearly the biggest party in Scotland at the moment. And I think they might feel this gives us a reason to push on on this because it's a differentiation with Labour 
um, for a party that people ordinarily vote for. But I think unless the conflict is still really dragging on in the kind of awful way it is now, that I don't think it will have major ramifications come the election. Jim, what do you think about that? I mean, Robert rightly points out the SNP are outflanking Labour from the left in this sort of pro-Gaza, pro-Palestinian position. We've also seen momentum. The Corbynite campaign group within Labour leap on the Rochdale result to say this is down to Starmer's twin failures on candidate selection, but again on Gaza. Is Labour's position on the Israel-Hamas war going to have to move further in light of this result? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem that Labour have is that they have changed position considerably from where we started out in October when Keir Starmer declared at the Labour conference that he would back Israel to the hilt. Um, since then, we, we have ended up in a position where only last week Labour was supporting an immediate humanitarian ceasefire, albeit with caveats including Hamas needs to hand over the Israeli hostages. But I think that's not enough for people who have been concerned about Israel's actions in Gaza from the beginning. And of course, we had that LBC interview before Christmas where Keir Starmer appeared to say that Israel had the right to cut off water and power to the Gaza Strip, which absolutely infuriated people, particularly Muslims, but not only Muslims. That clip went viral. And there's a, it's an attempt to undo that, which is taking a long time and, and is, is very problematic for Keir Starmer. I think what, what we've seen in Rochdale, which is really interesting, is that the issue beforehand was you know, what is the salience of Gaza, uh, particularly in, in a seat like that, which has over 30% Muslim voting populace. And a lot of people said there are loads of things people probably care about more, like housing, jobs, NHS. I think there's something about a by-election though, where it can become a lightning rod for a single issue. Gaza was the single issue. But when we get to a general election, not only will turnout be higher, but people's minds will be turning back to the things that matter most to them and their families. I kind of agree um, that, that this isn't going to be the, the defining factor of the general election at all. There will be a few specific areas in the northwest, South Yorkshire, East London, where there is a very high Muslim presence, where you could, you could, you could see this being a factor changing the overall outcome. I don't think there'll be, you know, a multitude of seats where think, independent pro-Palestinian candidates win. I think there's I something think the about danger Canada. for Labour is it's not so much the handful of seats where they could be threatened. It's if this issue begins to consume the party. Mm. Mm -hmm. If Keir Starmer is having to spend too much time on it and there's too much infighting and you've got Tories pushing at this, punching at this bruise from the other side. I think the danger for Labour is not the handful of seats where you correctly say mm. there's a risk. It becomes too big a subject for Labour when it's not what the voters are on. Mm. But the corrective to all of this, which we ought to point out before we forget it, is that in Wellingborough and in Kingswood, uh, only two weeks ago, of course, Labour enjoyed some of the biggest landslides they've seen in decades. So overall, I think the tide is still going the right way for them, despite mm. what yeah. Robert just said. And of course, I think in, in Rochdale as well, there are these specific elements of its recent history, the child sex abuse scandal, you know, long-term poverty that have served to undermine trust in the sort of political establishment or authority figures. That said, George, what do you make of Galloway talking about his workers' party, having 60 candidates waiting in the wings, being, you know, ready to negotiate? You know, Robert thinks there's not going to have much uh, electoral purchase, but it will have pressure on Labour. And, and could they, could he pick up significant votes to swing the result in some seats? Well, Rob and I were speaking to a member of the Shadow Cabinet um, earlier on today, and um, they were saying that maybe four or five seats could come into play because of this kind of, you know, Workers' Party, Palestinian uh, factor, but relatively small number, I would I would suggest. And the other thing, of course, to say is there's, there's only one George Galloway. I think mm. it was a point being made by John McTurnan, one of Blair's former advisors, that he's a kind of a unique figure in his rabble-rousing, sort of fiery invective, and so on. So I, I don't see it being a sort of 
a huge factor at the next election, apart from, as Robert was saying, this idea that he becomes this agent for sowing division in the Labour Party. He'll get a platform on some of the, the media channels. I imagine even GB News will, get, will give him, will make him quite a regular presence because it's a way of stirring things up as far as the Labour Party is concerned. And he certainly has a way with words, doesn't he? I must say I was struck by his soundbite that Labour and the Conservatives were two cheeks of the same backside and that backside had been spanked. Um, <laughs> Robert, for anyone listening who doesn't know that much about Galloway and his background, g- give us a bit of a potted history. Oh, God. OK. Putting you on the spot. He, um, he is a former Labour MP uh, for Glasgow and he won two different seats in Glasgow, mainly the boundary change realignments. He found himself on the wrong side of Tony Blair and the Labour Party over Iraq, forced out of the party, after which he became a sort of professional irritant to the Labour Party, um, standing and toppling uh, Blair favourite Una King in, in um, East London. He then did something similar in Bradford. On both occasions, he then subsequently lost his seat. He's also, you know, he's he's got some really awful friends. He's been photographed and, and see, filmed, you know, sucking up to sort of Saddam Hussein, to uh, Castro. He, basically, he's, he's probably the cleverest stupid man in politics. He, he's been on the wrong <laughs> side of almost every, every position, but he does it with great brio and vim. And as you say, he's tremendously um, articulate. He's a superb campaigner, which is obviously one of the reasons why he's won, um, although he probably was the only person campaigning apart from an independent. But, but he's an extremely effective performer. He's pro-Brexit, by the way. So he crosses over this populist area. So he's, he's, he's almost the perfect Labour populist. But he's an apologist for Putin as well. Absolutely. And until really late, I mean, he was, he was, he was denying Russia's involvement in the Salisbury poisonings well after it, it was logical to be doing so. So That's who he is, but he is an extremely effective wedge campaigner, particularly where he sees significant pockets of Muslim voters who he can appeal to on Middle East issues, which has always been his his biggest personal campaigning issue. So he'll be a big, loud figure. He won't do very much for Rochdale. And if past form is anything to go by, he may well be voted out at the general election, if not the one after. But he's a he's a big figure and just insert himself into the debate. Funnily enough, I, I used to play football for the lobby football team and George Galloway was always a frequent member of the MPs team. He, strangely enough, we always used to play on the left wing. And, and <laughs> another, another slightly sort of probably predictable thing is he always seemed to come off injured after about 10 minutes. So oh, is that right? So he's kind of what you call an impact player. Well, let's not forget as well, uh, one of my favourite moments, him in that leotard pretending oh, to be a, a cat drinking milk uh, out of the <laughs> cupped hands of, of an actress on Celebrity Big Brother. Um, but aside from being glib, Jim, I mean, there are concerns. The campaign against anti-Semitism has said that it is very worried by his election. George Galloway has made lots of remarks that are against Israel. He has always denied being anti-Semitic. But there are concerns about the way he uh, prosecutes his politics, aren't there? Yeah, and he's quite litigious and he threatens legal action against anyone who would suggest him of having any anti-Semitic tendencies. But what is very clear is that he is hostile to the state of Israel. The recent actions of the state of Israel have obviously fired him up in that regard. Um, and he he sees this political opportunity for for. The, the legitimate concerns that millions of people in Britain have right now about the extent of, of the deaths happening in, in the Gaza Strip as a result of the Israeli bombardment, which is, was, of course, triggered by those horrific atrocities by Hamas in October. What, one of the interesting things about him is that, you know, like Robert was saying, he is quite mercurial. One of his parties was called All for Unity, which I think is quite an ironic name when he's, he's been in four different parties, Labour, All for Unity, Respect, Workers' Party, of Britain, I agree with Robert that he's not going to last that that long, one, one would have thought. But while he's there, he's just going to stir the pot an awful lot on that issue. 
Hmm. George, just a final word on, on the by-election uh, then. Uh, reform, I mean, they just managed to hang on to their deposit, getting 6.3% hmm. of, of votes, but they came sixth. It's a big setback for them, isn't it? It is. I think there was some speculation that Simon Danchuk, who's a, obviously a former Labour MP for Rochdale, suspended over sexting a 17-year-old. Maybe he was an inappropriate candidate, but certainly it's a massive disappointment for reform after they polled over 10% in the two most recent by-elections. So I think... Um, that is, that, is, that is one big setback. George Galloway's victory came days after the Prime Minister warned that there was a growing consensus that mob rule is replacing democratic rule. And of course, we heard uh, this week uh, Lee Anderson digging in on his claims that the Islamists uh, had gained control of London and of the London mayor, Sadiq Khan. Um, Robert, you've written your column this week about the Conservatives' failure, as you see it, to police the boundaries of acceptable speech. Um, tell us more about that. Well, I mean, it very much touches on the, the Lee Anderson point that you mentioned, but I've also been very struck in the last few days. Um, we had Liz Truss in America sitting on a, on a, on a, on a platform um, with Steve Bannon as he praises Tommy Robinson as a hero and her saying absolutely nothing. Now, you know, sometimes with Liz Truss, it's just being flat-footed. You have to allow for that possibly. But she's also talking about you know, the deep state which sabotaged her premiership. We're part of it, by the way, the mm. FT. Well, shall we just listen to a clip of Liz Truss talking to Steve Bannon, the former Trump advisor at CPAC, a big gathering of Republicans in the US? The economic establishment in Britain wanted to keep things the way they were. And they did. They got me. But I have learned from that, Steve. You did? I've hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Was it The Economist that got you? Was it The Financial Times of London? Are these the people we got? This is the party the, at that. The city the, of London, these, are they the ones that run the deal these, over there? These, these are the friends of the bureaucratic establishment. They are the friends of the deep state. That was Liz Truss talking to Steve Bannon at CPAC in the US. Here's what Keir Starmer made of it. A Tory MP spent last week claiming that Britain is run by a shadowy cabal made up of activists, the deep state, and most chillingly of all, the Financial Times. <laughs> uh, at what point did his party give up on governing and become the political wing of the Flat Earth Society? Yeah. Robert. Well, given that Liz Truss had a go at us when she was talking to Steve Bannon, all I can say is I prefer our friends to hers. I'll start with that. <laughs> um, look, uh, what, what I was getting is that, she, you know, he's a former prime minister. I know that it's possible to paint Liz Truss as now being on the fringe of the Conservative Party, but she held five cabinet jobs and they elected her prime minister not that long ago. And then on top of that, and she took these paranoid theories about the deep state. You know, those of us who were there at the time, which is all of us, uh, remember that she was actually removed by her own party. So, you know, deep and the, state. And the free market. And the free market, which she believes in. So you've got her pushing these paranoid conspiracy theories, admittedly to sell a book in America, but she's still doing it. And then you have Suella Braverman writing in, in The Telegraph something a, a bit cuter than Lee Anderson. She manages not to personalise it, but she's also saying, you know, Islamists are in control of Britain. And... I just look at all this and think, you know, what the Conservative Party is in danger of doing is in its attempt to claw back the votes that it fears it's losing to reform, it is failing to police the boundaries of what, it, what a mainstream political party should be. Hmm. And if you look at what happened to the Republican Party in the US, it didn't turn Trumpist overnight. There was a series of minor compromises, one after another, where they, they let it go to win or they let it go to shore up their vote. And you end up, you know, with Republicans 
in, in Congress and in the Senate, trying to pretend that the election was stolen, that Donald Trump wasn't responsible, at least partly, um, for the capital riots. And the point is you don't lose a party overnight, you lose it gradually. And I think that's, that's the danger, given the Conservative position. And you end up with Rishi Sunak um, talking about mob rule. It's a bit of an indictment of a government that's been in power for 14 years, if we have mob rule in this country. So tactically, I don't think it's clever. But what I find alarming above all of this, especially if you feed in the Rochdale result, is you are seeing people who see political value in division and sectarianism and pushing against this. One of the things that Tories were instructed to do after the Lee Anderson issue was not use the words Islamophobia um, and even not use anti-Muslim prejudice. And when one cabinet minister, Tom Tugendhat, did use it, they took him off the broadcast round for the rest of the day. So the point is, they don't want to be seen to be going against people who are inflamed about um, Muslim activism. And so it's a really unpleasant time. And it's a time when responsible political parties actually need to be toning down the rhetoric. There are issues that have got to be addressed. There's no point in pretending there aren't problems to be tackled. But you tamp down the rhetoric. You don't fan the flames. There was a, there was a significant pause, wasn't there, George, between Lee Anderson making those very controversial remarks and Downing Street finally stepping in to remove him from the whip. Some suggestion it took for Sajid Javid, mm. you know, a Muslim former um, frontbencher, to ring up and say, look, you've got to take action. Yeah, there was a there was a very long delay. Rishi Sunak subsequently claimed he acted immediately to suspend Lee Anderson. That isn't the case. I was working on the Friday night when Lee Anderson made the remarks and um, Conservative Central Office put out a statement basically defending the remarks and saying they were just a legitimate criticism of Sadiq Khan's policing of demonstrations. Then there was the contortions over the weekend where he was offered the chance to apologise. And then subsequently, he was obviously suspended for not apologising and Rishi Sunak tried to rewrite history by suggesting he was suspended for the original words and he'd acted immediately. None, neither of those two things were, were true. And, and what about this um, consensus, this growing consensus about mob rule? Who, who is this consensus? Well, this is, this is an extraordinary thing. And uh, I was at a lobby briefing this week where I think probably about 45 minutes of questioning about Rishi Sunak's comments. You know, how does he explain that there is a growing consensus, a general understanding in the population that Britain has, is now being run by the mob rather than by a democracy? Uh, and the Downing Street spokesman said he didn't really want to name names of who was part of this consensus. It's a secret consensus. It's a secret <laughs> it's a <deep> consensus. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if you if you went down to to you know Tiverton in Devon, where I'm from, and asked people what they they would have no idea what Rishi Sunak was talking about. There, there plainly is not a growing consensus that mob rule is running the country. But I wanted to develop Robert's point. I totally agree with everything Robert said about policing the boundaries of what's acceptable for a mainstream party to say. But I think that what you saw with Truss and Braverman and Anderson and then the Prime Minister is all on the continuum of mainstream politicians who've been in power for 14 years, it has to be said, basically saying, we are not in control. The country's being run by the deep state or the FT or, is, or um, Islamists. And if you create the idea that you elect people, send them to Westminster, you're in power for 14 years, and at the end of it all, they say, we're not in control, someone else is. Then you get into a situation that we saw in Rochdale where people think, well, what's the point of voting for these people? They, they seem to be out of control. I think it's been a really, really bad week for mainstream democratic politics in Britain. Jim, you're dying to get in. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think what's happening here is that Tory MPs are trying to conflate two things. They are taking these huge uh, anti-Israel protests that are happening regularly in London and they're trying to imply that you know, these, these mobs are so huge and some of the stuff there is so offensive that somehow in this city controlled by Sadiq Khan, who happens to be Muslim, 
everything is a bit out of control. They sort of give the impression if you were living somewhere outside London that this is happening all the time. No one can go about their daily business because these these huge demonstrations. And they are ignoring the fact that, as far as I know, the vast majority of these protesters are people who are concerned about what Israel is doing in Gaza and they are not kind of deranged Islamists who want to create a caliphate. It's an absolutely absurd idea that it's being hinted at, nudged at, played up by certain Tory MPs. But if you are in somewhere like Grimsby, which is where I was on Tuesday and Wednesday doing some reporting for a long piece I'm doing, and you don't regularly go down to London, you might get the, this, this totally erroneous impression of what is, what is happening in the capital I mean, hang on, let's, let's not be too, we, we have to be careful not to be overly glib about the issues. There are threats to MPs. Mm. There are threats to people. There are threats to the Jewish community. Um, there are things going on that people are frightened about. So... Yeah. And politicians shouldn't pretend that everything's rosy and there's nothing going on. There aren't different security yeah. threats that have mm. to be tackled. The issue is reducing it to language like mob rule, which stirs up anger and hatred, of course. Rather, than ad- rather than addressing the specific concerns. And to be totally clear, some of these protesters at these anti-Israel pro-Palestinian rallies are saying and doing unacceptable Absolutely. things. Of course, of course they are. But to somehow make some sweeping blanket claim about all of them is, completely. is, is my point. So anyway, so I was in Grimsby, had a wonderful time. I went to the, the fish market, went to see offshore wind farms in the distant Humber Estuary, talked to an awful lot of people, went out for a few pints with Charlie Bibby, our photographer, chatted to an awful lot of people. The thing that is really striking is the political apathy and the hostility towards Westminster and the main parties, not just from people who have no hopes because they're unemployed, they have no housing, all the rest of it, People I spoke to on, you know, engineers on 50, 60 grand a year, a couple of successful entrepreneurs, they were telling me how they think Westminster is is rotten and, you know, not working in the interest of the people and all the rest of it. There's, there's, a, there's a very, very, I would say, kind of dangerously nihilistic attitude out there, which if a Trump-type character came along, mm. you know, there could be people that vote for them. For, for now, some of our populists seem to be not particularly popular, but should a, a very, very charismatic populist come along, there, there is there is quite a sense out there that the, the country is fed up in the main part. And I, think, I think that's why, although there are specificities around the Rochdale by-election, it is a canary in the mind for exactly what Jim's saying, yeah. for dissatisfaction and growing detachment from mainstream politics. You don't think the mob rule is mobs of FT journalists are you going around <laughs> or making sure the deep state is functioning properly can we be sure that's not the case we're not going to let you back. know if we're part of the deep state yeah, that's the last thing we're going to invest the, first, the first rule of deep state club is not to talk about this <laughs> well next week we've got the budget it's all hands on deck at the FT of course um, George what should we be looking out for well one of the things we should be looking out for is whether the nods and winks from coming out of the Treasury come true and that they end up stealing a load of Labour Party policies because you know, I'm going to report to you what people are saying inside the Treasury and you have to aim off, of course, because we're into the period of management of expectations. But the overall picture is that there's very little money available for tax cuts, which um, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister want to prioritise, whether it's national insurance or income tax cuts. Um, so they're rattling the tin to try and find money to fund those tax cuts. And one of the things they've alighted on are a number of things which would be very tempting from a party political point of view. So one of the things that we've reported on is the idea that they could, but that's not confirmed yet by any means, um, reduce the amount that they say they're going to spend on public services after the election, the so-called scorched earth policy. Sometimes the Labour Party talks about that can release five or six billion quid if you knock a bit off the, the spending assumptions after the election. Or you could raise money by nicking some of Labour's flagship policies. For example, as we also reported, the idea 
of taking Labour's plan to scale back or scrap the non-DOM tax break. Mm -hmm. Another suggestion being made that the government could uh, nick Labour's idea about windfall tax and extend that as well. Now, the, the tempting thing about that is both those things will raise money for tax cuts now. But of course, the other thing it does is it allows Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt to say to the Labour Party, we spent all that money already on tax cuts. So how are you going to fund your policies on the health service or breakfast clubs at schools? And then you get into the, the position that the Tories desperately want to get into, which they've tried to line up a Labour tax bombshell argument yeah. for the election. So they obviously think that might be canny politics. But Jim, isn't the flip side that Labour can say, well, look, you know, these guys are so out of ideas, they're having to reach into the locker for ours. That's great. We welcome that. Why don't you just hand over the keys to the car now? You know, you're endorsing us as, you know, people who are putting forward responsible fiscal policies. I mean, my, my experience of politicians nicking ideas off each other is that no one really remembers it. So if you think of all the U-turns that Boris Johnson did, even I can't remember half of them, I think Boris Johnson nicked quite a few Labour policies. It's a pretty regular thing to do. I, I totally agree with George that, that it basically, you know, firstly, a couple of these ideas could raise some money if Jeremy Hunt went down uh, that route. So getting reducing non-DOM status, maybe extending the windfall tax. And you and you also just make Labour's um, offering, which has already been reduced on the Green Prosperity Plan recently, you make it look more diminished, especially if you also said, as Jeremy Hunt, we're going to have a look at private equity tax breaks as well. He doesn't even need to you know, change private equity tax treatment straight away. He could just say, you know, we're, we're going to carry out a review of it. And then that just leaves Labour with almost only one fiscal policy, uh, which would differentiate itself from the Tories, which is the uh, taking away the tax perks enjoyed by private schools. And I think that's one thing the Tories wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't go down that particular <laughs> avenue. They think no. that that's potentially unpopular for Labour. The jury's kind of out, out on that one. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting politicking ahead of a general election. Robert, what are you looking at for at the budget? Well, I, mean, I do think this is the fascinating central question because we know that Labour's every instinct is just to say yes to whatever the government have done in the budget. Say, oh, absolutely, we won't reverse that, you know, unless they do something screamingly easy to attack, like maybe in abolishing inheritance tax, then Labour's instinct is to say, yes, look, we, we're, we'll deal with the world we inherit. Um, but I do think we're getting quite close to the point where, you know, a decent political party promising to give Britain its future back has to, has to engage in the argument and say, well, look, actually, we don't think that this is that these extra tax cuts are the like, and we would spend this money differently. And it's it's you know it's not a position they want to get into. They don't want to go into an election saying we're going to raise taxes. But the truth is, at some point, if you're going into a, the people saying the NHS doesn't work, our schools don't work, our councils are bankrupt, they can't provide basic facilities, social care is not functioning, we've got a defence budget we have to fund. At some point, there might just be an argument to make that says, actually, we didn't think this was the right time for tax cuts. We think this is the right time to invest in our crumbling public services. And there are polls that suggest that people might be interested in hearing that. It's a dangerous strategy. I'm sure they won't take it. But there is an argument that has to be made. Well, we'll be back next week to fill it, all the details and minutiae uh, from the big fiscal statement. We've just got time left for political fix stock picks. Uh, Jim, who are you buying or selling? I'm selling George Galloway. No, no disrespect to gorgeous George. It's, it's just that you should always sell when stocks are at the top. And I'm going to buy Paul War because he's not even a Labour candidate for Rochdale at this point in time. But one might think that the political journalist um, Paul War could be the next Labour candidate for the seat. And if, if Preston is any guide to what happens to Galloway when he is elected in by-elections, um, he could be replaced. George, who are you buying or selling? Well, I think I'm going to be selling Darren Jones this week. He's the Labour shadow hmm. chief secretary who's 
the person who's going to have to try and make the make the sums add up after Jeremy Hunt's has, has taken an axe to some of their um their spending proposals. So uh, let's let's sell sell Darren Jones, Robert. So I think. After much hesitation and delay, I'm going to buy Nigel Farage this week. Um, I think the kind of politics we've seen in the last week are exactly those that are conducive to his kind of politics. He's got lots of issues he can fight on. If there's mob rule in the streets of Britain, that's exactly the territory he wants to be fighting on. So Sunak has given him another weapon. I think he's increasingly attracted to the idea of standing for Parliament in Clacton-on-Sea, which he might win, and coming back in some way uh, to, to spearhead the Reform Party um, campaign. So yeah, I'm reluctant. I think I'm going to have to buy Farage. What about you? Um, I'm going to hold Angela Rayner, the Labour deputy leader. She's come under some pressure this week um, after um, the big headline out of a new um, book on her by uh, Lord Ashcroft uh, found she may have underpaid uh, capital gains tax on her um, house. But I think she's weathered this storm pretty well, and that's the worst they could find on her. I don't think she's going to suffer too much. And I think she's an effective campaigner who can reach parts of the electorate that um, Starmer and some of the other smoother, slightly blander uh, members of the shadow cabinet struggle to do so. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, Robert, Jim, George, thanks for joining. Thanks. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the FT's Political Fix. I've put links to subjects discussed in the episode in the show notes. Do check them out. They're articles we've made free for Political Fix listeners. There's also a link there to Stephen Bush's award-winning Inside Politics newsletter. You'll get 30 days free. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Plus, do leave a review or a star rating if you have time. It really helps us spread the word. Political Fix was presented by me, Lucy Fisher, and produced by Audrey Tinlin with help from Leah Quinn. Manuela Saragossa is the executive producer. Original music and sound engineering by Breen Turner. Cheryl Bramley is the FT's global head of audio. We'll meet again here next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.